our short-er, not short, but short-er Christmas message comes from 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 through 15, and then 18 through the end of the book. 1 John chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Then down to verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Isn't it nice when you're reading a book and the author will state his or her purpose statement very clearly so you can easily understand what the book is about. A few years ago, I read the book, maybe some of you did, by Marie Kondo. Yes, I read this book. The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, The Japanese Art of Decluttering and Organizing. And this was her opening sentence. In this book, I have summed up how to put your space in order in a way that will change your life forever. I did read the book. It did not change my life forever, but I did get rid of a lot of socks that did not spark joy in me. (laughs) Truth. The Apostle John is equally straightforward in giving to us the purpose of not just this book, But his gospel, John 20, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose statement for the gospel. And here in verse 13 is the purpose statement for this letter. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, in the gospel, he is writing so that you might believe and by believing have eternal life in his name. And here in his letter, he is writing because you do believe and he wants you, us, me, he wants us to know, therefore you have eternal life. In this final section of the letter, we see John giving several reminders and then a concluding exhortation. Look at the reminders first. There are six things that John says we know as believers in Jesus Christ. You see verse 13, I write this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. If that's you, you believe in the name of the Son of God. You have given your assent to those things, but more than that, you have put your trust 
in him, then these things we know to be true. Number one, verse 13, we know that we have eternal life. Notice the present tense. You have eternal life. Yet, yes, in a sense, it is what is coming. But here he can speak, as he does elsewhere in John's gospel, that you have it in your present possession. Therefore, it cannot be lost. Some of you have lost loved ones in this past year. Many others will be remembering those who have gone before. And if they have died in the Lord, what a comfort it is to know that though they have died, behold, they live. They have eternal life. And now they have it in its fullness. That's the first thing we know. Look at number two. We know, verse 15, God hears us when we pray. That is, we have access. We have access to God in a way that the holiest Israelite did not have. But once a year that the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and make petition for the people. Now we have a great high priest who has gone before us into the heavens that we might have constant and eternal access to God. He hears us when we pray. Third, we know that we will receive what we ask of God in prayer. You see that the second half of verse 15. Now notice there is an important guardrail to this promise. It says, if we ask anything according to his will at the end of verse 14. Remember, even Jesus, as he prayed in the garden, was take this cup from me, nevertheless not my will, but yours be done. And if the perfect son of God had to pray that, and indeed... What he asked for, God did not see fit to grant him, but he had to drink of the cup of his wrath. Then we too, when we pray, we are always seeking to pray in accordance with the will of God. So this is not some sort of vending machine God you put in a prayer and you get out whatever Snickers bar you want whenever you want it. When we pray according to his will, he hears us and according to that will, he gives us what we ask for. So we do not ask with presumption, not my will, but yours be done, but yet we should pray with confidence. Our prayers, though they often feel very weak, my prayers feel like that. Do yours probably often feel like, what am I doing? I can't even stay on track for 30 seconds sometimes. These do not feel like banging on the door of heaven. They feel like little fizzy rockets that go up a few feet and plummet to the earth. Well, this should give us confidence that our prayers are not falling to the ground. No matter how weak, how weary, they ascend to heaven and there at the right hand of God is the Lord Jesus interceding for us. He hears us and he will always do what is good for us as his children. Notice number four, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. You see that verse 18? Now this verse, and there's a lot of verses like this in 1 John, has often confused Christians. Does this mean that if you're a true believer, then you don't sin at all? In which case, I'm looking out and no, I don't see any true believers here, including in this pulpit. But that's not what John means. It is not a statement demanding of us perfection. 
The Christian is not a perfect person, not on this side of heaven, but the Christian is a changed person. In 1 John 1, we read that if we say we have not sinned, the truth is not in us and we make God a liar. So clearly John is not holding out to us an unrealistic standard that you never sin in life. But he is giving to us the very important reminder that if you are genuinely a Christian, there is something that has changed about you. And God has worked a change in you so that your life, though it may feel like three steps forward and two steps back, and some weeks it's two steps forward, and then the next week is, is a few more steps forward and back and back and forth. Yeah, it feels like that. As David Paulison said one time, the Christian life can feel like uh, a yo-yo, doing a yo-yo, walking upstairs, Your Christian life feels like up and down and up and down. And yet, in that sense of your imperfection, there is a general momentum of progress, of change, of holiness, to see that your life is no longer marked by the same sinful patterns it once was. There is a dying away of the old man, a breaking of old habits, a gradual weakening of the world over our hearts. That's what John means, and we know that to be true of us. If we are in Christ, number five, verse 19, we know that we are from God. That is to say, we belong to God and not to the devil. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are safe. Or as verse 19 says, the world lies in the power of the evil one, but we are from God. And verse 18 says, he protects us. This wonderful paragraph from John Calvin, and perhaps you can hear echoes of the Heidelberg Catechism in these sentences. The Heidelberg Catechism question and answer number one, which is read at almost every funeral that you might go to. Listen to what he says. We are not our own. Let not our reason nor our will therefore sway our plans and deeds. We are not our own. Let us therefore not set it as our goal to seek what is expedient for us according to the flesh. We are not our own. Insofar as we can, let us therefore forget ourselves and all that is ours. Conversely, he says, we are God's, apostrophe yes. Let us live for him and die for him. We are God's. Let his wisdom and will rule over our actions. We are God's. Let all the parts of our life strive toward him as our goal. Oh, how much has that man profited who having been taught that he is not his own has taken away dominion and rule from his own reason that he may yield it to God. What an incredibly countercultural sentiment when everything about us would have us believe that you are your own. You control yourself. You are the master of your own fate and your destiny. The Christian gospel undercuts all of that and says, no, 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 there is true freedom found only in this. When we begin to believe and confess, we are not our own, but we belong to another. And then six, here's the final thing that we know if we believe in the name of the Son of God. And this connects us most explicitly to Christmas. Verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come. We should understand that to mean he has come 
in the flesh. Six times then in this final section, we have a statement, we know. And the statements really work backwards. You, you start from this last one and then you go up to the first one. Because of what you know here in verse 20, you can believe that Jesus is the Christ so that you can be born again, so you can be set apart from the world, so you can pray with confidence, so you can know that you have eternal life. This knowledge in verse 20 is foundational for all the rest. We know that the Son of God has come in the flesh. Have you stopped to think in the midst of all that you're trying to get done? And yes, we are still hoping that the Amazon truck makes it to our house tonight. Have you stopped to think for a moment again what a miraculous thing we have been singing about and celebrating? Meekness and majesty, transcendence and eminence, the eternal one born, immensity dwelling in a stable, omnipotent power coming to us in tiny helplessness. In the early days of the church, there was some controversy over whether or not Mary could be called Theotokos, which is Greek for God-bearer. There was some sense that maybe that doesn't seem quite right. Should we speak in such a lofty term about Mary? And so there was a nervousness about the term, but the right view won out. And that was to say that the statement is not so much about Mary as it is about the one that she was carrying, that in her womb was God in the flesh, so that indeed she was Theotokos, the bearer, not of a superhuman avenger, not of a superhero, not of a James Bond spy who can never die, but of a God-man. We read in 1 John chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. John says, in other words, we, and here he's thinking about himself and the apostolic band, we saw him. We touched him. We had a meal with him. We are eyewitnesses. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you believe what you sing at Christmas? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. God of God, light of light, lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb, very God, begotten, not created. This flower whose fragrance tender with sweetness fills the air, dispels with glorious splendor the darkness everywhere. True man, yet very God, from sin and death he saves and lightens every load. Thou who art God, beyond all praising, all for love's sake, Becamest man.
or King of kings, yet born of Mary. As of old on earth he stood, Lord of lords in human vesture, in body and the blood. Do we really believe the songs that we sing at Christmas? Have you and I forgotten how good this good news truly is? We know the Son of God has come. Now, you might think that that would be a very fine place for John to end his letter, but he seems to have tacked on in verse 21 a sort of strange postscript. Six final statements we know, and that would seem to be a really strong ending. I can imagine that maybe his language arts teacher would have said, hmm, John, I don't know, this, this, you could have probably done without this last sentence. But no, it is the perfect way to end this letter. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. You see, this final exhortation, which can feel kind of out of place, is the perfect summary of all that he has been writing about in this book. He's saying, do not be swept up by imposters who would have you chase after the world or cling to your earthly possessions. Do not run after any other God other than the God-man, Jesus Christ. He is true God and eternal life. So let's make the end of this sermon very simple. One question. Do you believe in this Son of God? Or to put a little more meat on the question, do you believe that this man, a real flesh and blood, physical, first century Jewish man, that if we had lived in the time would have looked like us and talked like us, this Jesus of Nazareth, that he is the son of God and the only name in heaven and on earth by which we can be saved from our sins. You might think sometimes to yourself, belief. Why why such stress on belief? It can feel like I, I need to get a theological quiz right or I don't go to heaven. But that's to think about faith in very reductionist terms. Think about the opposite. Think about what unbelief says. We didn't read it, but over in verse nine of chapter five, it says, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater for this is the testimony of God. He has born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. John's argument is you believe the eyewitness testimony of men. What about the testimony of God? And he probably has in mind here the testimony of God, perhaps at Jesus baptism, when he said, this is my beloved son. Or the testimony of the Spirit in raising Jesus Christ from the dead. He says, God bears witness. And we know from elsewhere in the New Testament, part of that witness is the Spirit speaking to your hearts. Maybe even right now, testifying in your heart. You know this to be true. God is bearing witness. And so, if God tells us something and God shows us something in his word and God reveals something in history and here we have the record of it and we do not believe God, then we're calling God a liar. John Stott said, unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied. It is a sin to be deplored. Its sinfulness lies in the fact that it contradicts the word of the one true God and attributes falsehood to him. So my question is simply this, do you believe in the Son of God? 
everyone talks about faith at Christmas. No one has a problem about faith. But what is the object of your faith? It isn't that the mere act of believing something that saves you or watch any Disney movie and you can be saved. No, it is the object of that faith. And here we have before us the object and the only object that saves. Do you believe Jesus is and was a man? Do you believe he is God? Do you believe he is savior of the world? Do you believe he is the Lord and giver of life? Do you believe that in his name and in his name alone, there is forgiveness of sins and there is hope? Now, we might have wished for a clear, beautiful, starry night, but instead we have one of these North Carolina wintry sort of evenings where it's going to get colder and it's dark and dreary and rainy. Yes, it's dark and dreary tonight. You had to get out your umbrella, but it won't always be dark and dreary. The sun of righteousness has risen with healing in its wings and there will be a great day coming when this Christ born as a helpless babe will return on the clouds to claim those who are his own. Do you believe in this Christ, not the the Jesus of some hallmark imagination, but this Christ of the Bible? There's a lot to love about this season. And I sincerely hope you enjoy every good gift of family and food and traditions. But know this, family will not save you. Watching It's a Wonderful Life or Elf will not save you. Reading Twas the Night Before Christmas will not save you. Eggnog and sugar cookies and gingerbread houses will not save you. Bing Crosby and assuredly Mariah Carey will not save you. Dreaming of a white Christmas will not save you. Working hard to get on Santa's nice list will not save you. Little children, keep yourself from idols. There's a reason John ends that way, that we might not follow after any imposters, not in his day nor in ours. And if ever there is a season where The idols can mingle and come very close to replacing the real thing. It is in Christmas. Know this. The Son of God has come in the flesh and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, that we may be in him and he in us. The baby born in the manger is the true God and eternal life. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, give to us, if we have it not tonight, the gift of faith. And perhaps our faith has grown weary. Perhaps we have leaked the gospel in this hard, difficult year. Renew our courage, our strength, and more than that, renew our faith in the one who has strength and courage that we lack. We pray that you would be glorified in this Christmas Eve and in this Christmas morn tomorrow and in each Christian life in this room. In Jesus we pray, amen.